We're going to take another stab at our King Me series. So turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. We're making our way through what I look at as almost a vocabulary of faith, that we're given something, grace, salvation, but then we're to grow into it as well. And you see that in this text. Verse 3, 2 Peter chapter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason... Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this text, this season, where we remember and think and sing of your unspeakable gift that you would leave comfort and glory, heaven, and become a babe and grow and learn and become our great high priest who has been tempted in every way as we have, yet without sin, and then die to reconcile us and redeem us and adopt us into your family. May we spend this next week relishing, remembering, being renewed in our minds about the great gift you've given to us. And then may we be propelled into making every effort to live like you have lived. So this morning, train us in that way, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you don't know, quickly, we're doing a King Me series. Uh, Our destiny, Revelation 22, a bunch of places, says that one day we will rule and reign with our king forever. That's our destiny. Uh, When we conclude this series, we'll look at what that probably looks like, what I think it looks like. But it's very clear, rule and reign with him forever. So that's the series. And now we're coming to this new word, and it's this word godliness. And I was thinking about this, this word this week, and I had this trip I had to take, and I had to run some errands. So I grabbed one of the new kids in my house right now. His name is Terrain. He's six years old. So he jumps in the car with me and we're driving along and he said, hey, Matt. I said, yeah. He said, how fast are you going right now? And I was worried for a second. I'm like, oh no, well, how fast am I going? 
but I was doing 30 and a 30. I'm like, I'm doing 30 miles per hour. Thank you very much. Yeah. So he said, is that fast? I said, it's a lot faster than I can run. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not as fast as you can go on a my way. I said, on a what? He goes, you know, when we go over to Medford and we drive on the my way. I said, oh, you mean a highway. <laughs> I said, you've been driving with my wife too much, man. <laughs> Big Christmas gift for her this year. That was so cheap. And I started thinking about that. I thought, that's how we treat it, isn't it? When we're on that road, when we're on Interstate 5, it's my way. What are you doing in the fast lane? You're going 72 miles per hour. Get out of my way, right? That's what it is. <laughs> what is all this traffic doing in my way, right? That's the way we view it. I want this thing. This is for me. It's supposed to serve me. And if it doesn't, I'm getting mad. So how interesting is that? What a good name for it. A my way. Well, this word godliness intercepts that idea that we all have. This idea of my way. And it's the Greek word Eusebius. And that word Eusebius, it, it doesn't speak of inside stuff. It always refers to outward action. That's godliness. So you, uh, we get given inner goodness. We call that righteousness. But the actions that come from that inner righteousness, the Bible would call that Eusebius or godliness. And what's interesting about this word is, it's very often used of people that don't even believe in Jesus. They're not converted yet. And yet the Bible says they are Eusebius. And so our example this morning is from a guy that's not converted yet. And yet he is referred to as Eusebius or godly. So let's go to Acts chapter 10 for our model, which is what we've been doing in this series, not so much a theological treaty of these words, but more an example of someone that lived it out. So we've looked at guys like David and Caleb and Joseph and Daniel and Paul. Well, this morning, our example of Eusebius or godliness is a guy named Cornelius. And we look at him in Acts chapter 10. I'll read the first seven verses and then we'll see what it means to be godly. Verse one, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. These are stallions. A devout man, that word devout, guess what it is? Eusebius, or it's a root of it. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror. That's interesting to me. An angel shows up to a guy who's like SEAL Team 6. And when the angel shows up, how does this SEAL Team 6 guy respond? Pinch him on the cheek like a little cherub? No, he's in terror. 
I don't think many of us would want to see an angel. The only angel I want to see is my wife. Other than that, angels are terrorizing. You look at very often the reaction in the Bible when a human sees an angel, it's almost always, don't be afraid. There's something about them that people are afraid. So this guy, probably been in multiple wars in his life, he sees this angel and he's in terror. And he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier, also Eusebius, from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Cornelius, cool guy. He is called, not a believer in Jesus yet. You know his story, he does. But he's not a believer in Jesus yet. He is referred to as this guy is devout or this guy is godly. Now, why is he called godly? Well, it tells us right afterwards, right? Number one, there's four things that he does that demonstrate what it means to be Eusebius or godly. Number one, verse two, he feared God. A generation ago, we would use that term as a way of complimenting somebody. If you knew a man who had character and who had metal and who had integrity, you would refer to that guy as he is a God-fearing man. We don't use that anymore, do we? In fact, we've actually reversed that whole thing around and now we use that same kind of idea like this. If someone wrongs me, I'll say, oh, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna go put the fear of God in him. Usually when we're driving on the my way. It's usually when we feel that way. Right? So we've kind of, we've reversed this whole thing where we're going to do it now. But number one, he fears God. Now, what does that mean to fear God? It's not this worry that God's going to smite you with illness or your car blows up or you get fired from your job for doing something wrong. That's not the fear of God. That's not God the Father. That's the Godfather. Don't think of God that way. It's the absolute wrong way. It's a perspective on the way things work. Fearing God means this. I understand my place in the universe and I understand God's place in the universe. There is a God and I am not him. He is the center. I'm not. That's the fear of God. When you don't have that perspective, what happens is the Bible says it spins you in such a way that you actually become ungodly because you make something else the center. God's not the center anymore. I'm the center. It's my way now, not his way. It's my way. And the moment you do that, there's a seed planted in your heart that begins to grow into something weird because then you look at the world as it's supposed to serve me. And what are these cars doing in my way? And why doesn't that guy treat me that way? And doesn't he know who I am? Yes, he does. That's why he treated you that way, because you're not God. So it grows in you and it becomes really bad. It's a recipe for frustration and anger and all these things. And so the fear of God, what it does is it interrupts that and it kills that. 
Let me explain. Here's how. Um, I'll stick with the driving analogy. So let's imagine for a second, you're with your family, you're driving your vehicle, and you are having a heated discussion, an argument, okay? Just pretend. I know it never happens. Just pretend. Pretend it happened this morning. Some of you don't have to pretend it happened this morning. All right? So you're having this heated argument and it's about your way. Like, and you're going on. All of a sudden, a semi truck pulls out in front of you. What happens in that moment? Do you keep trying to make your point about how it's my way? And if you don't get on my way, we're going to have trouble? No. What do you do? You go, ah, and hit the brakes. Why? Because something greater just interrupted your perspective. Now your little meaningless argument about this or that means nothing because you're ready to die. That's what happens with God. When you understand he's the center, he interrupts this thing that goes on in us where we try to make everything about ourselves and by fearing God, it changes that and he becomes the very center of my life. That's the fear of God. So this week, we had some major, major rain, right? Anybody have some problems with that? Well, I had some problems with it. My barn ended up about three inches underwater inside because there's this little seasonal creek that goes behind my barn. It wraps kind of around it like that. Well, it didn't wrap anymore. It went through the barn. So I had to go back Thursday night and, and dig and do all this kind of stuff to try to get the stream going where it's supposed to go. And it's not very big. It's, you know, at its biggest, it's four feet wide and maybe four or five inches deep. It's not a lot of water, but it, it was amazing how much work it took to just control this little amount of water. And as I'm doing that, I'm thinking, imagine, imagine if this was the Rogue River right here. How much dirt would I have to try to move to control the Rogue River? Whoa, not going to do it. Imagine if it wasn't the Rogue River. Imagine if it was the Mississippi River. How much dirt would I need to move to control the Mississippi River? Imagine it's not the Mississippi River. Imagine it's the Amazon River. How much dirt am I going to have to move to control that? Imagine it's not the Mississippi. Imagine it's the Pacific Ocean, right? You go bigger and bigger, and that perspective interrupts you, right? Imagine if I had to move a star. Imagine if I had to move the Milky Way. That interrupts you. What I realize is I'm a speck on a speck, circling around a speck, surrounded, a bunch of, surrounded by a bunch of other specks. So what do I expect? It's humbling. That's the perspective of God. There is a God and I'm not him. That life is not my way. Life is a highway and it's his way. And that simple perspective, it plants something into you and me where things go right. Where no longer am I looking at everything about, hey, why isn't this serving me? Why isn't this helping me? Why isn't this going my way? Because it's not about my way. It's about his way. That's fundamentally the fear of God. It's his way. And I orbit around him and he becomes my center. And because he's my center, my perspective is clear. So Cornelius got this right. Number one, he just realized, it's not about me. It's about him. I fear him. Number two, what it produces is, he feared God with all his household. And number two, he gave alms generously. 
The outward action of this kind of inward attitude is he is generous. Now, why would the fear of God shift him from being selfish or self-centered or my way? Why would it shift that to now being, hmm, I'm gonna be generous with what God has given to me? What's that priority again? What happens when God's the center of my life? I I view everything as God's, not mine. That I'm simply a steward of what God has entrusted to me. And if he wants to use it some way, no problem. He can use it that way. Everything becomes a tool for him to use, not for me. That's that shift. When God is not your center though, here's what happens to the human heart. We will make something the center of our life. If God is not the center, if he's not the gravity, if I don't circle around him, if I don't realize he's God and I'm not, then I'm gonna replace God with something else. I'll put something else in that position and my life will then begin to revolve around it. Could be health. Health becomes what I spend all my money on, all my time on, all my efforts on. Could be acquiring wealth. That that becomes, hey, my life is about how do I acquire wealth? How do I do that? And whenever I do that, the moment I make something else my center, here's what happens. I'll be generous to whatever my center is. The way that you really know who your God is, it's real simple. What are you most generous with? With your time and your talents and your treasure. That's the center of your life. That's your God. And the Bible says it better be God because anything else, look out. And we all go through seasons where other things kind of capture our imagination. I remember for me, uh, my junior year in college, I made this decision. I decided I'm not going to be scrawny anymore. And so there was a nine month period all that year where my time, my talent, and my treasure went to working out. I worked out six days a week. Uh, all my extra money went to buying like weight gain mass. Mega Mass 2000, where you could like drink, uh, you could drink an entire steak in about five minutes. So it just went to all these supplements, all this stuff. And I remember I came home at spring break down here and people hadn't seen me for a while. And the greatest compliment I received was a guy said, dude, have you been doing steroids? I went, no, but thank you, man. Wow, you're worshiping my God, right? So we can, there can be these things that kind of grab us. And, and what you really notice is, man, I centered on that for a while. That was my center. Every spare kind of thought I had, conversation I had, question I had, reading I had, it was all about how do I serve this thing? The problem with that is this. Any center other than God one day will betray you. Do you know that? We all know the health nut that only ate like Swiss chard and kale and Brussels sprouts that isn't healthy anymore. We all know that person. Maybe they're not even here anymore. We all know the guy that made money his thing. I'm gonna get money, right? Here's the thing with money. Sooner or later, all your money will belong to somebody else. Do you know that? For some of you, it's sooner. We all know the guy that made 150 grand a year and now you have to buy him lunch. We all know people like that. So every other center, one day, it will betray you and me. So God says, make me your center because I'll never betray you. In fact, I'll order your life in such a way that your priorities make sense and bring to you a flourishing 
brilliant life. And that's what happens. When God becomes my center, money no longer has that power over me. So you read Paul, especially in Philippians 4, he says this, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. Don't, don't be caught up in that. Don't be caught up in trying to figure out how you're going to make all this kind of money. Yes, work hard. Yes, do what you're supposed to be. Be responsible. But ultimately, God's your center. And then he says just a couple sentences before that, he says this, you know what? I've had a lot and I've also had nothing. And I've learned in whichever state I'm in, whether I have or whether I don't have, I've learned the secret to being content because God is my center. So Cornelius got this. He could be generous. Why? Because God wasn't, because his center was no longer money. It was now this tool. Hey, if God wants me to help widows and if God wants me to help orphans and if God's after the broken and if God's after these people, then because I've been orbiting around him, he's starting to rub off on me and I want that same attitude toward the poor and the broken and the widows and the orphans. I'm gonna use this as a tool to help them. Are you generous? This is a season where that question just, launches at us from every direction. Are we generous people? Or are we hoarders? Are we generous? And I find if I'm not generous, I need to go back to, I need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing that he will add all these things to me. Because when I make him my center, all of a sudden, I'm much freer with the things that he's entrusted to me. So number one, he fears God. It turns into number two, this generosity and then number three, it says this, that he prayed continually to God. Number three, he prayed. Anyone struggle with that word continually? Because the Bible uses it quite often with prayer, like pray continually. Anyone do that? I'll tell you, I struggle greatly with praying continually because I don't do it. Yet here's a guy who prays Continually. So if you remember back in October, we tried an experiment here during our services where we wanted to kind of inter- integrate continual prayer. So during the, during the praise time, we ran prayers on these. Do you remember that? It didn't work out very well. So uh, the best comment I had was somebody that said this, Matt, um, when you're doing that, it reminds me of when I took LSD. I thought, well, that's not our goal. So let's change that. <laughs> All right, we'll probably do something else. So, but the idea is, listen, our lives aren't like cut and dry. We don't praise and then, and then pray. And then that's not how life is. Life is much more mixed up. So our, our goal was right, but the way we walked it out just didn't work at this stage. But continual prayer, man, the Bible calls for it over and over and over. And here's what I've noticed. I've been to a lot of churches. When I go up to Portland, I would bounce like from church to church to church because I love seeing how people express corporate worship in different ways than we do. Like it just excites me and it's interesting. I try to grab things and think through like, how are they doing that? I'll tell you, of all the churches I've been to and on vacations, my wife and I are always like, hey, what church should we go to? What different kind of way of, of seeing how people express corporate praise could we go check out? but I've never seen a church do what we do. Pause during praise and say, we're gonna pray right now. I haven't seen that. And I started wondering, why is that so rare? 
Why is it so rare to see this? We need to stop and pray. Why is prayer so rare? Here's a guy, godly guy. He prays continually. I think it's going back because he was God-centered. And when God is your center, why wouldn't you talk to him? Why wouldn't you pray to him? It's like this, parents, if you have kids, when your kids are little, aren't you the center of their life? Like everything that they do, everything that they are, everything that they know, it revolves around mom and dad, right? And so they're always like looking at you. It's hero worship. I'll give you an example of this. We had our Christmas party on Monday. And so my family went with our two new boys, Arrow and Terrain. And Chad Hansen, you know, big Chad Hansen, 6'4", 250, big Chad Hansen, he's on the ground playing with them. And so Terrain is like kind of taught, he's, my, he's the six-year-old and, and he's checking out like, like Chad, like, hmm, who is this dude? And so he says, Chad, can I see your muscle? So Chad's like, well, all right. So he flexes, he's like, hmm, all right. He goes, Chad, are you the strongest guy here? And so Chad's like, well, you know, I don't want to be bragging, but. He said, well, I could be. And Terrain said, no, you're not. Matt is. Yeah! Why? Because I'm the center, right? That's what's supposed to be our life. God is. Why wouldn't I talk to him? Why wouldn't I pray to him? Why wouldn't I ask him? When I don't pray, fundamentally, God's not my center anymore. Something else is. And I'm looking to that center to be my solution. Instead of it being his way, the highway being his way, it's some other way. And so I don't seek him and I don't pray to him. Cornelius, with really limited theology, he gets this one. Well, if God is God, then I'm gonna start talking to him. I'm gonna start praying to him. He is the center, period. I love that. And then fourthly, and finally, it says that, verse seven, when the angel had spoke to him, and had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him and related everything to them and he sent them to Joppa. Number four, he obeyed God. I think that one's self-explanatory. Godliness is going to be expressed in obedience to God. If he is my center, if I fear him, if, if I'm saying, hey, I'm just a steward of what you have given to me, so use it generously. If I'm talking and praying to him, when he speaks things to me, then it's going to be expressed by obedience. So to me, Cornelius is this fantastic example of what it looks to be godly. Fears God. He is generous. He prays and he obeys. There's Eusebius. But I want to know one thing before we're done. Because here's what fascinates me, especially coming from a 21st century mindset. You have this guy that this angel is saying, bro, you're the best. Your generosity and your continual prayers, God's heard them. And he's like, whoa, he sent me down here. And what does the angel say to Cornelius? Does he say, bro, since you're such a really good guy, we're just here to say, hey, keep going. Keep doing what you're doing. We trust you, man. We're rooting for you. Just keep doing what you're doing. You're on the right track. Keep going. You're good enough. You're smart enough. Gosh darn it, we like you up in heaven. 
Is that what he says? No. He says, because you're a really good guy, you need to be converted. Isn't that fascinating? Because you're a really good, devote, praying, generous guy, you need to be converted. Boy, we don't say that today, do we? And yet that's what the Bible says. The fact that you're really good and really godly, you need to be converted. It's a little bit stunning. But what's, what's being said here is real simple. Godliness does not save you. God does. Do you catch that? Godliness does not save you. God saves you. And when God saves you, here's what he does. He plants into you something inside, not outside, inside that grows up and transforms you. So maybe you noticed this, maybe you didn't. In the text that we've been centering on, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says this. All that you need for life and godliness, Eusebius, has been given to you, right? But then it says, verse six, now make every effort to add to yourself godliness. You're like, what? Is it given or do we grow in it? Which one is it? Yes, it's both. God plants into us this seed, this new life, this incredible thing. And then that seed, that new life gets watered. And yet we partner in that and it grows and it transforms us because God, listen to me, God is not interested. God is not interested in fakes. He does not want people that act a certain way, but inside they're different. He doesn't want somebody that might appear generous, but really on the inside, they're like, oh, what? I have to give to you? Oh man, I hate that. Fine, here you go. God says, I don't even want that. I want you to be changed into the type of person that realizes the way this thing works. It's not your way, it's my way. That the highway is my way. And when you realize how this thing works, your response will be you'll become a really generous person. That's what he wants. Where the insides match the outside. That's what God's after. He's not after fakes. We wouldn't want fakes either, would we? We don't like fakes. If we find out someone's a fake, it bothers us. I'll give you an example. Um, Mother Teresa. Really, 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 really cool person, right? If you ever studied her and read her, like it's a, she's an amazing woman. Leaves really a comfort thing, goes to India, leaves a comfortable place in India and goes to the slums of Calcutta. Pro- arguably the worst place on earth. Arguably the worst place on earth, Calcutta, slums. So she goes there and, and I'll read for, her, for you what her goal was in the Calcutta slums in 1950. This is what she says. To care for the hungry, the naked, the homeless, the crippled, the blind, the lepers, all those people who feel unwanted, unloved, uncared for throughout society, people that have become a burden to the society and are shunned by everyone. Not a lot of big tithers in that crew. I'm going for the worst of the worst. That's who my heart is called to. So so we read that and we're like, man, how awesome is that? That's godliness, right? 
Now imagine though that we found some journal of hers. She passed away in 1997. Imagine we found some kind of journal of hers. And in her journal, she's like, man, I can't stand these beggars. I can't stand these lepers. I'm just doing this to win the Nobel Prize, which she, ran, which she won, and to become famous. Would that change how we feel about Mother Teresa? Oh, totally. Now, we haven't found anything like that. She's a very genuine person. But we're the same way. We say what's inside of you should match what's outside of you. So God says, I'm going to plant something in you. It's gonna be so powerful and transforming that what's inside of you will become what's outside of you and will change you forever. And the truth is this, in every church across probably the entire world, there are godly people that are not saved. The truth is probably here this morning. And I wouldn't be a good pastor if I didn't address that. Now we think, well, it's because of my godliness, it's because of these things, I'm good. But she's never never been converted. God comes to Cornelius and says, man, you're a really good guy and you need to be converted. There are stories of this. The best example I know is John Wesley. Anybody heard of John Wesley? Really good guy, amazing guy. But if you know his story, here's his story. He goes to seminary at Oxford, pretty good university. Goes to seminary at Oxford. There he is one of the standouts. He and his brother form what's called the Holy Club because they fast twice a week. John Wesley and his crew, right? So he graduates, gets ordained and says, I wanna go on the mission field. Is sent on the mission field over to the United States, to Georgia. Goes to Georgia, forms this church, falls in love with this girl. It's always a girl, look out. The girl then marries somebody else. He gets mad, kicks them both out of church. Well, the governor of that area got mad at him for kicking out the, it was like his daughter, for kicking his daughter out of church. So he has to leave Georgia and go back home to England. And he's broken. On the 24th of May, 1783, to Aldersgate Street to this little tiny Bible study. And he doesn't want to go, he doesn't want to go, but for some reason he goes. And when he goes, they just read Martin Luther's introduction to the book of Romans and Galatians. And he says, as he heard these words of grace, he said, for the first time in my life, I trusted Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins. And I felt my heart strangely warm and I walked out of that room a different person. He was converted. And then we know the John Wesley that came from that, forming the Methodist church, doing brilliant things. But before that meant he prayed, he looked godly but it was all outside. There was no truth inside. It was not until that was planted inside of him and began to grow that it became deeper and stronger and it was organic. It wasn't something he was building. It was something he became. He became godly, godly. That's what God wants for us. Are we John Wesley's? Listen to what Peter comes and says. So really good dude named Cornelius Peter comes and shares this, verse 39 of chapter 10. And we are witnesses of all that he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him. I love that phrase. We think Jesus was like some kind of I don't know, mirage or something when he came back, he ate and drank. 
human, fully human, fully divine, ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's the gospel. Cornelius, man, you got some devout good things. You fear, you're generous, you pray, you obey, but you got to be converted. You have to have your sins forgiven. You have to be adopted into the family of God. You have to have planted in you this new thing, this new heart, this new renewed humanity so that you can become a single kind of guy, not double, not indifferent than out. And so he's converted, if you know his story. Have you been converted? Do you trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Not anything you're doing, not your generosity, not your prayers, not your obedience, but you're accepted because of the blood of Jesus Christ, paved a new way, a bridge that allows you to go from your way to his way, and he does it for you. That's the gospel. If you're unsure of that, after this service, there'll be some guys and gals up here. They'd love to explain it to you more. Very important you get this answer right. Because then what takes place inside of your heart becomes who you actually are. You become converted. You become a believer. You don't try anymore. You become it. And yes, you partner. And yes, you work. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. But it's all, it is who you are. The deepest desires of your heart now are godly desires. They've been replaced and transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. And you're given his spirit that enables you to obey. And if you're a believer, then what we get to do every Sunday is we come up here and we partake in the bread and the cup. And we partake and we remember this. We remember it's because Jesus died, was buried and rose again that I'm saved. Every time I take communion, I remind myself of that, that he became my unrighteousness so that I could become his righteousness. The great exchange, Martin Luther called it. So we enjoy the great exchange. And that plants in me even deeper, Eusebius, makes me godly. So Jesus, I pray that every person in here has been converted. I thank you for the example of Cornelius who walked well, did good things, and yet he was still required to believe on the Son and have his sins forgiven and be brought in to your kingdom. And so may every person here be assured of their salvation. May they be assured that they know you and are known by you. And for those of us Lord, that have been walking with you for a while, I pray even this day that the bread and the cup would be the elements that solidify in our heart. May that be solidified once more, that we are accepted by you. And I pray this in your name, amen. Amen.